This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. The Lord's table that you would indeed uh, nourish us and speak to us. Lord, uh, strengthen us. We need your not only your encouragement, but we need your grace to do those things that you've called each one of us to do. Help us, we cry. And we ask this for the sake of Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. We come to a passage that in, in the last few, few days sounds like a tour I'm leading. And uh, I had to think and think and think. And uh, the challenge for all of this and the temptation for every preacher I said, is to try to produce something new and fancy and to pro- produce some new insight or some new revelation, certainly a new joke or a new illustration, maybe one not so well known on the internet. And you know, I always have to be reminded, and I'd like to remind others that uh, preaching God's word is uh, simply about being reminded. This is, these are things that we generally really do know, or we should know. But uh, being human, we are in constant danger of forgetting. And it is a part of the human condition, part of our fallen nature, to forget, to forget, and to forget. God does a miracle for us in the morning, and already by the afternoon we're complaining. Is it not so? And uh, it is little wonder that over and over and over again, the Hebrew Bible at least, gives the command to remember to remember, to remember. Maybe it's the most often repeated commandment in the Hebrew Bible. And so I'm just here as a paid reminder. I'm going to remind us of um, some very simple things. And those two simple things would be um, really the connection between holiness and discipleship. And obviously the calling, it's not the calling, the readings in the lectionary today are about receiving a call. And they're very, three dramatic men, Isaiah, Paul, and uh, Peter himself uh, are all called. They all encounter the Holy One And it might certainly seems to be the intention of those who stitch together this lectionary for us to focus on that. But instead, I'd like to focus on something again, which is obvious, but something that uh, we sometimes forget. And we take these two categories and we oftentimes separate them. And uh, I don't, I'd like to see if we can put these together. If it's successful, I will give credit to my teacher and a good friend, 
Dwight Pryor, uh, who died eight years ago this month, or eight, about eight years ago this time. And uh, I think we have a picture of him. Dwight ran the Center for Judaic Christian Studies, and uh, I owe a great deal to him, and so does this church. And I can highly recommend uh, his teaching materials, even though he is passed from this world. Uh, His ministry continues to bear fruit, and I have no doubt it will continue to do so for uh, generations to come. But I'd like to... um, just remind us of a few things. Uh, And first, in our passage in Isaiah, when Isaiah cries holy, not just once, but has to cry holy three times, that uh, when we oftentimes encounter God's holiness, it it can be uh, very frightening. Uh, It could be, in a way, unfathomable. We don't know exactly Uh, what this means, it can be uh, fascinating and attractive. And I I like to use the image of fire because God being a consuming fire uh, is a uh, metaphor. It's an image that's used over and over again through, through Jewish literature, starting, of course, with the Bible itself. And that fire does it not? Fire is dangerous, very dangerous, and it's also life-giving. You can't live without it. But if you're not careful, that fire will consume you. If you're careful, we can allow the fire to purify us and not to destroy us. And this is God's holiness. And we could spend an entire sermon time just reminding ourselves of what holiness means. But due to time constraints, let's think about it in three ways. Certainly one, holiness um, is a distinction. It's a certain separation, is it not? To be holy means God is separate, that he's totally, radically other from his creation. That while he is the creator and the creation is good, he is not to be confused with the creation. He's not to be confused with any other God or any other so-called gods. That he's radically more powerful than any of these gods And he's certainly different in every way. And of course, this is important for us. And in that separation, what makes him distinct is his perfection, that God himself uh, is perfect. So we have uh, an understanding of holiness as being uh, a separation or distinction. We have an understanding of holiness uh, being uh, about about perfection, and certainly we need to understand that a part of holiness is not only that God is um, that God is separate from His creation, but also separate from evil. Yes, that's by the way part of the the modern spiritual disease 
In many Gnostic and New Age uh, religions, they try to, um, uh, in, a, in a way, bring parody uh, to make Jesus and Satan or, or God and evil somehow equal or, to, or try in some way to uh, explain God as being the source of evil, which is, of course, not the case. But, of course, there's another aspect to all of this, and that God is good. And what it means to be holy, whether for humans, but especially for God, is goodness. Is goodness. You know, the gods of, this, the, gods of the ancient world were thought to be holy. They were thought to be powerful. They were thought to be supernatural. But virtually none of them were good. Those gods, especially in the Greco-Roman world, uh, you know, they might uh, cause your crops to die. They might uh, sexually abuse your daughter. They might bring mischief to you. And of course, one always had to try to appease them, appease them, appease them uh, through the sacrifices. They were powerful indeed, but they were not good. The gods of our age, by the way, are powerful, but they're not good. The gods of materialism, the gods of convenience and ease, the gods of nationalism. And by the way, like all gods, these gods will demand blood. They'll demand a sacrifice of their, from their adherents. And in a few hours, we're going to go off to Yad Vashem as a group, some of us at least, and when we get to Yad Vashem, we will see the fruit of idolatry. And the fruit of idolatry in Europe is the death of 50 million people. The blood of the, Europe, the continent of Europe, from the Atlantic to the Urals, soaked in blood. Again, because of idolatry. And actually, in the case of World War II, in the case of uh, uh, an idolatry that was infused with an anti-Semitism. So the gods of this world demand, are not good. And of course, we sometimes are deceived by the gods of this world and we do not reject them as idols. So this is holiness. Again, perfection, separation, goodness. And this is, by the way, what we see uh, in the scripture itself, that God uh, not only is holy, but he calls upon Israel. He calls upon the nation of Israel to be holy. He calls Israel a royal nation and a holy priesthood. He then says to Israel, be holy as I am holy. Six times in the book of Leviticus, he says to Israel, I want you to imitate me and reflect who I am in this world. That's part of Israel's mission. And again, part of that Understanding, I mean, for example, if you read Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18 is about uh, abstaining from separating oneself from immorality, sexual immorality. And uh, we're very familiar with, at least some of us should be, 
uh, with the uh, requirements uh, that God makes uh, in the book of look in the book of Leviticus, and I should say, by the way, this is not something only given to the Jewish people, because today you have many people who say, "Well, why should we live by these?" Uh, these uh, restrictions, or why should we adhere to these sexual restrictions or restrictions on sexual morality? Because after all, it says in the book of Leviticus, don't eat shrimp. And what do we do today? Especially in the Christian world, we all eat shrimp or we all eat pork. And some of us, some cultures would collapse if they couldn't eat pork. And so therefore, these these restrictions have no... uh, you know, they have no hold over us. But Leviticus 18 is given not just to the Jewish people, but is given to the nations. And God says, because, because the Canaanites committed these sins, okay, they were expelled from the land. And Leviticus 19, which again, some of us probably know even better, hopefully we know better than Leviticus 18, and God starts off, the, the, the chapter starts off by saying, be holy for I am holy. And then it goes on and gives a long list of things which define holiness. And part of much of what defines holiness, and we've said this before in this chapter, is about goodness. It's about um, uh, our love of our neighbor, our concern for the poor, our concern for the stranger, This is what makes God holy, and this is certainly what makes us holy. Let me read you just a few verses. It says, uh, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I am the Lord your God am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father. Do not turn to idols. Uh, When you sacrifice an offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in a way that it will be acceptable on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over on the third day must be burned up. That's kind of strange. Why would you do a thing like that? What does that have to do with holiness? Again, even in the ritual, as we said a few days ago, even in things that we consider to be ritualistic, oftentimes is something moral and ethical. And this, pro- this prohibition of holding on to the meat is God's way of saying, you need to share the sacrifice. You need to eat this in fellowship. You need to give this to others and not in a way, just keep it, uh, keep it for yourself. Uh, do not lie, do not steal, do not deceive one another's. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane profane the name of the Lord your God. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not curse the deaf or put up a stumbling block. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the rich, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you do not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees. So here are 
we have God's, uh, we have an understanding, maybe even a poor, limited understanding of who God is, that God is intrinsically holy, and that the one word that defines him more than any other word uh, is indeed holy. And yet God at the same time demands of his people, Israel, and later of the church, that we be holy. That we be holy. And anything associated with God is holy. God's throne is holy. God's name is holy. The, the garments that the priest wears, holy. The temple is holy. The land of Israel has a measure of holiness to it. The city of Jerusalem, even more. But just because God declares something holy and something associated with God uh, has the potential to be holy, it doesn't mean that it's holy. And a good example is the Sabbath. On Friday night, we talked about the differences between uh, the Sabbath as uh, described in book of Exodus, chapter 19 or chapter 31, and the book of Deuteronomy in chapter five. And in book of, in Exodus, the command is to remember the Sabbath. Now we already know the Sabbath is holy from Genesis. So remember the Sabbath, that's good. But in Deuteronomy, it's observe the Sabbath, okay? It's observe the Sabbath. And so what we learn from this and what we learn from uh, scripture itself, uh, and again, maybe I just give another example. God says Israel is holy, but then he tells Israel six times, I want you to sanctify yourself. I want you to be holy. So what we learn from this is that holiness and the great benefits that come from holiness, which power, and intimacy and ultimately goodness that we ourselves must take part in a partnership with God in doing the sanctifying. That God wants us to bring sanctity uh, to the Sabbath, for example, or wants the Israelites to bring sanctity to the nation and reflect who God is and be that witness in the world. And how do we do that? What's the pathway for all of this? And here I'd like to remind you, again, that uh, in the teaching, especially that we have in the New Testament, but uh, in early Judaism, they confronted this reality. And the reality that they confronted was, and it's a very simple one, and those of you who teach and preach, uh, and those of you who don't teach and preach and who are trying to read the Bible, you, we have this dilemma or we have this challenge. And the challenge is we read beautiful spiritual language. Do we not? We read in the Bible, follow the Lord. Trust in him. Okay? Walk in his ways. And my goodness, that language, especially if we, are, uh, if we love God, really does warm our heart. I mean, it goes in one ear, goes right down to the heart. It makes us feel good and fuzzy. And then in a few minutes later, it goes out the other ear. 
and we have no idea what it means. And we don't always know how to teach people how to do it. And the Jewish sages, you might say, even before the time of Jesus, they confronted this reality. And they thought, how do we make things practical? How do we make things doable? Because if something is so abstract, you can't do it. What do you do with it? You need to toss it in the garbage disposal or the bin or the rubbish. I suppose that's the word you use if you're from Kenya. Yes? So we have all kinds of fancy theology. But how do we, how do we come to a place of holiness? Because may I remind you that without holiness, according to the book of Hebrews, no one will see the Lord. Yes? How do we do it? You know, is it just this state of being? Do we have someone pray over us and we get an infusion? Okay. Uh, of holiness and that makes us holy. So how do you love the Lord your God? How do you love him with all of your heart and all of your soul? Okay, and all of your strength. You have to make that practical. It has to be definable. People have to understand how, what it means and how to do it. And holiness, how does one, under, how does one come to a place of holiness? Listen, it was, was concluded uh, that uh, from, for example, a number of verses, including Numbers 15, and I mention this because the group I'm with hopefully knows this verse by now, uh, or these verses, uh, talking about um, speak to the Israelites and say to them throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a cord of blue on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lusts of your own heart and eyes. And you will remember to do my commands and you will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out to be your God. I am the Lord your God. How is it as holiness is, uh, how does one come to a place of holiness? Through obeying God's commandments. Now again, how do you obey God's commandments? And so by the time we get to Jesus, there are many teachers of the Bible. And these teachers of the Bible are doing in a way what Jesus did. They're raising up disciples. They're raising up students. These students or these learners, those who are hearing and then doing and putting into practice what they've heard, uh, will imitate uh, a sage will imitate later a rabbi as that rab rabbi lives out God's word. And the rabbi, of course, understands that he is imitating Moses, who is imitating God. And it's by imitating God, it's by doing what God does, that again, we come to that place of holiness. And we, we come to the place of uh, knowing those benefits of holiness the blessing of holiness. And here we have a story in today's gospel of Peter. And Peter uh, is a fisherman. He lives, he's from Bethsaida. He's from the town 
of Capernaum, or he was residing in the town of Capernaum. I don't know. He, he probably, because his, perhaps his wife lived there and he's living with his wife's family. He's a hardworking businessman who has his own business and his own boats. He has gone out. He knows who Jesus is. He has gone out fishing. He's fished all night. Uh, and fishing especially is hard work. And most fishing was done at night because the nets were made uh, out of um, linen. And uh, the fish could see those nets during the day. Uh, they work really hard throughout the, uh, for many hours. They catch nothing. Jesus comes walking along. It's early in the morning, uh, no doubt, uh, and it's very interesting. Unlike Jesus, who's rejected in Nazareth, he's very popular in Capernaum, and even early in the morning, he has a crowd that's ready to listen to him. And of course, as we read in the gospel, Peter comes uh, disappointed, probably frustrated, maybe thinking this is a, this is a hard way to make a living. Uh, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Put back, go back out and catch fish. Catch fish in the day with nets that the fish can see. That is indeed a miracle. And of course, Peter's reaction was, Lord, was first, first Peter calls Jesus the master. He calls Jesus a teacher because Jesus had been teaching, okay? And then he calls Jesus Lord after the miracle that he sees. Uh, and go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And certainly like Isaiah and like Moses uh, and like others uh, in the biblical story, when encountering God's holiness, okay, the right response is to see our, to, to know, and perhaps we, this, will come, this comes automatically, does it not? that we are indeed unworthy, that we are indeed incredibly sinful. And Peter wasn't a bank robber. He wasn't a rapist. He wasn't a racist. He, he wasn't uh, someone who excluded minorities. Okay? He wasn't some big sinner. Neither was Isaiah. But still, in both readings, what we have is that when encountering the holy, when encountering the glory of God, there are no words except that we're inadequate, or go away from us, or not me. Now, how is it that Jesus is going to bring, after calling Peter, how is it that Peter is going to become holy? How is he going to come to an understanding of, of a separation from evil? of God's perfection, God's goodness. And very simply, that way of holiness is accessible for us, open to us, not by following a rabbi and by keeping the injunctions of the Torah, but by following Jesus and being his disciple. Come and follow me. That's the message that Jesus has. And the come and follow me, the come and walk after me, come and be my disciple.
is not only so that Peter can go out and do a job and do a mission, and it's certainly true that Isaiah and Moses and Jeremiah and many others, Paul is a good example, and here Peter, when they encounter the holy, they're often given a mission. In Paul's case, it was go to the Gentiles. In Moses' case, it was go and tell Pharaoh to set my people free. In Peter's case, it's you're going to catch, I want you to, um, to, to, to catch people, catch lives. And the Greek is really interesting there because it says Peter should catch fish alive. Usually when you catch fish, they're dead or you kill them soon after you catch them. But it's not that this is a process of death, it's a process of life. And it's through this imitating or modeling our life, okay, on Jesus. You know, come and follow me literally means come and imitate me. Come and learn from me. Come and be my student and do what I do. And it's through that process, it, it, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's time-consuming, sometimes it's slow because of our sin. And there is, by the way, something very beautiful in this. The fact that Moses, Paul, or Jeremiah, whoever, encounters God's holiness doesn't mean they're perfect and doesn't mean they won't make mistakes in the future, as Peter obviously makes a lot of mistakes in the future. But you see, salvation is a gift, as Dwight Pryor used to say. And can you finish it, Carrie? Oh, you see, we forget, even his students. Discipleship is a process. Discipleship is a process. It takes time. But it also, my dear friends, it takes effort. And sometimes we have a misunderstanding of, what, of grace. And we oftentimes think that somehow to make an effort, to make an effort is somehow we're, we're trying to earn something by works. We're not trying to earn anything by works. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Not trying to earn, you know, this relationship. Actually, what we're trying to do is respond to God's grace. And we respond to God's grace. We respond to that call. And hopefully, all of us have heard that call. The call that says, come and follow me. Yes? Come and follow me. We we respond to that call by beginning to walk after Jesus. How do you get to the promised land, which is not heaven, the Bible, it's your place of destiny or your place of blessing. I'm gonna start talking, being like a prosperity preacher here now. How do we get to the promised land? You walk. You walk to the promised land. Okay, how do we come to a place of holiness? We walk after Jesus. Okay, 
And that requires always in discipleship in the the ancient Jewish world. And you know, many books are written on discipleship. The Navigators, for example, have been really great at pioneering these things. Uh, Bible dictionaries have big, long articles on discipleship. But it's very interesting how so few Christians actually make a connection to or make reference to Jewish discipleship because discipleship is a Jewish institution. And uh, people somehow think we invented it as Christians. Dwight Pryor used to say something like this, did he not? Used to say that uh, we so ignore our Jewish, the Jewish context of the gospel that we actually believe that uh, the apostles came down on a spaceship and they married disciples and they had lots of little epistles, you know, as if they have no kind of historical context. But to, tell, to, to begin to conclude, what, is this, what does this imitation of Jesus mean? It means, first of all, if you wanted to serve, you wanted to attach yourself to a rabbi, you had to spend time with that rabbi. There is no discipleship. There is no walking after. There's no imitation without intimacy. And secondly, um, you not only had to listen to the words of the Torah that came from his life, but of course you had to imitate his life. You had to copy what he did. You had to see how he lived out the Torah, how he um, loved his wife, how he treated his dog, okay? Did he give to charity? Again, all of these things, by doing these things in a practical way, brings us in, brings us into a place of holiness. And that holiness, again, has its blessings, if we're not afraid of them, if we're not afraid of holiness. And secondly, you had to serve. There's no discipleship without service. There's no discipleship without serving the sage or the teacher or the rabbi. And these are the two pillars on which this all stands. And the result, again, is holiness. But I think sometimes that we have to confront, do we not, our fears. And the fears that we have to confront are many. First of all, we might be afraid of holiness because holiness makes demands. Not only to separate ourselves from evil, but again, to be good. By the way, you can't dialogue with holiness. You can't dialogue with fire, which is the problem of the Episcopal Church. Sorry if I offend anyone who's an Episcopalian. But then again, there are lots of other Christians, they don't have to be Episcopalians, to try to play with fire. Because um, uh, in, any, in any event, 
If we do such a thing, it will end up consuming us. But Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. And the question is, are we afraid and do we hold back? And we have many, many fears, often stemming from really our lack of faith and our lack of trust. So maybe it boils down to a trust, Israel, to a trust issue. Even for those of us in the ministry, can we really, really fully trust Jesus? Yes? You know, can I really leave all and follow him? Can I be like Abraham? Can I give up my past and even give up my future? Is God really able to provide for us? And surely that miracle that Jesus provides proves the point. The wedding at Cana, the healing of the paralytic coming in from the roof, that Jesus can actually do much more than we can ask or even think. That there's a generosity and there's something very liberal and expansive about God's provision and God's economy that most of us still don't fully take on board. These are questions I think that uh, all of us need to face. And I think when we're teaching about discipleship, uh, we need to lead people not just into prayer and Bible study and attending church meetings, but I think the more that we can lead folks into having a relationship with the Lord, not just with a set of propositions, not just with a set of doctrines, that in meeting the, the Holy One of God, who is Jesus of Nazareth, that uh, these fears okay, will be melted away and that uh, we can fully trust him, that we can leave everything and immediately follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we do indeed confess our fear. We confess our hesitancy. We confess our resistance at times to you. And Lord, some of us want to hold on to our sin, and some of us want to hold on to keep control of our lives and to provide for ourselves. Lord, we um, ask that you would forgive us and that uh, you would help us to be more intentional about that discipleship and that uh, you would give us that desire indeed to imitate you and to do so without fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.